I'd like to begin with a definition as we get into the passage of Revelation chapter 16. Because we will find this word repeated a number of times. The definition that I'd like to give is of repentance. There's lots of different definitions about it, but they all essentially say the same thing. One of the best that I came across was that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change in actions. I think that really covers it. The Greek word that we'll encounter today uh, definitely has a context of changing mind. It's It's a radical change of mind. And it doesn't just stop there because it bleeds out into our heart and into our actions. Now there's a big repentance that's often addressed in scripture, meaning changing one's mind about the state that we're in. Acknowledging our wretched state as sinners against a holy God. And it's a divine and godly work that's done in a person to allow them to acknowledge that because we're in a sinful state. We're helpless. But God's desire is for repentance. His desire is for us to change, to change our mind, to change our heart, and to follow him with our actions. And that is exactly what repentance is. And so keep that in mind as we go through this text. So without further ado, we'll jump in chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, on seven bowls of the wrath of God. Thank you. The seven bowls of the wrath of God. There we are. It takes a village, right? All right. Uh, okay, let me just start over. Chapter 16, verse 1. We'll edit that last part out. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. So another uplifting passage. Right? You're, you're welcome. The Greek word for loud, uh, of this loud voice, is megas, which uh, meaning great, large, intense. We see that all the time uh, with, that, with that prefix used. It's translated a number of different ways, and it, even in our passage. And so with that, you might miss that it comes up 11 times in our passage today. It means something. There's this repetition to emphasize something that is incredibly intense, and that is an unprecedented judgment. It's also interesting to note that God gives uh, this command to all seven angels. Um, A lot of the other judgments, God gives a command to one angel, then another, then another. Um, But here he, he tells everyone, almost almost as if this is all going to be overlapping or at least in rapid succession. God's wrath, for some reason, is often described in dining terms. The cup, a bowl. Where the language itself implies that God's judgment is measured. 
which it is. And it's contained, which it is, until it is poured out, which it is. And we're told that the judgment of this first bowl is explicitly directed at those who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Again, if you're just popping in with us in Revelation, we've seen this in previous chapters where um, where Satan and those who follow him um, have, are, are required voluntarily choose to have this mark placed upon them that identify them with Satan. And as we get, as we get into this, we'll see a lot of similarities between um, Egypt and the book of Revelation. So when God rescued his people out of Egypt from slavery there, there was a, a number of plagues that he sent on the Egyptians to demonstrate his power and his might and to allow the Egyptians to, to let the Israelites go. Um, and there are a lot of similarities in these plagues and the Egyptian plagues, although the order isn't necessarily similar. similar. But again, these harmful and painful sores um, are similar to the sixth plague of Egypt of boils. And so if you think about it this way, those who bear the mark of the beast will bear a different mark in the form of sores. That's part of God's judgment. Another part of God's judgment is affecting the seas. Turning water into blood was another similarity, something that we saw uh, back in Egypt uh, where Moses was able to demonstrate God's power by turning uh, the water into blood. And this is going to affect all the sea. So everything dies that was in the sea, which is mind-boggling. It would be a disaster and a mess, and it would stink. Well, at least there's the fresh water, right? Um, not so much. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So salt waters turned to blood. Fresh waters now turn to blood. And those who have rejected Jesus Christ, who called himself living water, are now without water. Jesus promised those who would turn to him that they would never thirst again. This is an opportunity to repent about Jesus, to turn to him for forgiveness, so that our souls will never thirst again. There are a couple of commentaries on this judgment. One is from the angel um, in charge of waters. Again, in, uh, in Jewish thought, angels were, were seen as controlling wind, water, some of these different uh, natural elements. And so here's this angel who is in charge of the water, who presumably, as an angel, would want to do a pretty good job of caring for the water. And he's looking at this judgment and saying, yep, that's fair. That's fair. We crave justice. We do. When we see someone get away with something horrific, it incenses us. It violates that internal 
uh, core, I would say uh, something that we share with God, one of the attributes, is this sense of justice. And it bothers us, and it should. And so when we, when we look ahead at this, where Christians are going to be murdered for their faith, it should be outrageous. And honestly, if God didn't ultimately punish sin, he wouldn't be a good God. So this justice is right. This justice is fair. And those who were thirsty for the blood of Christians, of martyrs, now have it in abundance. This Approval of the judgment also comes from the altar of incense. We've seen this a couple of times before in the book of Revelation and presumably the same place uh, from which the prayers of the martyrs come from. And they're in resounding agreement as well. So we have a people covered in sores. The waters of the earth are all turned to blood. And yet the plagues continue. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. This fierce heat or megas uh, heat will give, apparently, quite the sunburn. But can you imagine imagine this on top of already having painful sores? One of the things that we see, particularly in these verses, is people know that it is God who has power over these plagues. But they don't repent. Repent. They don't change their minds about Jesus. Instead, they curse the name of God and refuse to give him glory. Again, some of these plagues are are very general and everyone would be affected. This This fifth plague is specifically on the kingdom of the beast which I imagine at whatever point this is uh, in, in history will be large. The kingdom will be large. And is this figurative darkness, you know, like the internet disrupted? Oh no, TikTok is gone, I'll do anything. Um, or, or more literal, like, like the plague uh, seen in Egypt, where a divine darkness comes over the land. People will be in such agony at this point that they will gnaw on their own tongues. What a devastating picture of this misery. And yet, refuse to repent. Again, people who reject the light of the world will be cast into physical darkness and in eternal darkness. It's a picture of that. And yet, they don't repent. 
There are three things that people tend to question about God, at least in the way that I think about it. One is his existence. Is God real or imaginary? People question that. His greatness. Is he omnipotent or is he impotent? And the third thing they question is his goodness. Is he good or evil? In verses 9 and 11, the unrepentant acknowledge God's existence as the source of these plagues. Like they acknowledge he exists. They acknowledge that he is powerful, albeit they may, they may still believe or hope that Satan will end up being more powerful than God. But they acknowledge his immense power to be able to inflict these plagues. What they do is they seem to question God's morality. They assume that he is the one who is evil instead of themselves. Why would he do this to us? They're literally telling God to go to hell, cursing him. This is the picture of hard-heartedness that is, it's mind-boggling, and yet it's still prevalent today. Right? Something bad happens, and we tend to assume that it has to be somebody else's fault. Now, please hear me clearly. I am not by any means saying that if something bad happens to you, it must be your fault. What I'm saying, though, is that to acknowledge God's existence, to acknowledge his power over the universe, and to question his morality so that you curse him instead is insane. It makes no sense at all. As we continue on in these plagues, we read that the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. A little bit of a different, longer description of this sixth bowl. And the main point of this bowl is that God allows the kings of the earth to gather together and be assembled for this battle, giant battle or battles. The river Euphrates was dried up so that kings of the east can be gathered. I don't want to put too much conjecture into what that actually means or who the kings from the east are. Um, But they're gathered by what uh, John calls three unclean spirits like frogs. Frogs were often considered uh, loathsome and unclean. I know they're kind of cute sometimes, but... Um, but but in that in that day and age, they would be considered uh, often loathsome and unclean. And there's some speculation that frogs were chosen for this imagery because of their croaking, the constant croaking. This picture of mouths spewing forth um, constant false words and teaching. And they gather together the armies of the world. 
in the place called Armageddon. So to summarize what's happening here in verses 13 and 14, this unholy trinity, Satan, the beast, and his false prophet want to take the place and overthrow the holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They'll put everything they have into this. They'll use signs and wonders to convince everyone else to join them in this fight. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this, Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to come like a thief. Where did that come from? Exactly. That's the point. right? Jesus, Jesus inserts this into the vision as a reminder in case we forgot what was happening in the grand scheme of things that Christians are supposed to be awake and alert and busy about the Lord's work. Stay awake. Keep your garments on. This probably came from uh, Roman soldiers' practice um, that if anyone was caught sleeping while on guard, some of their clothing would be removed in inopportune places so that everybody would know their shame and embarrassment for having fallen asleep and putting the army or the city or whatever they were guarding in danger, in jeopardy. They don't do that in the army today, do they? That's good. That's very, very good. Or not, I don't know. Maybe it was very effective. Probably only had to happen to you once. But this, again, this parenthesis uh, functions to remind the listener or the reader to be ready. To be ready for Jesus' return. And finally, in terms of the plagues, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This definitely seems like a finale of judgment. We have this, this voice, again, a mega voice. Think Mark Miller. Right, a loud voice with ultimate authority. The voice comes from the temple, from where it has originated before, and also the throne. Not the throne of the beast, as in earlier in verse 10, but the throne where God reigns over the universe. Jesus cried, it is finished on the cross. When he sacrificed himself, making a way for anyone who calls on his name to be saved. And yet we see again no repentance. Not when the father cries, it is done. His judgment is final. There aren't any more chances after that. The earth is essentially leveled. I mean, the Richter scale will have nothing on this. It's, it's total destruction. Mountains leveled. 
island's gone away. This is part of resetting the earth. There's been some discussion as to whether this great city was Jerusalem or Rome as the new Babylon or just representative of the evil empire that's described as great in terms of its size and relative influence, and yet it's leveled by God. It is no match. We see one of the last uh, descriptions of something as mega, these hailstones, which, by the way, the largest hailstone ever recorded, I think, was in Nebraska. It was about seven inches and two pounds. So you can imagine the incredible destruction of, of this last judgment. And yet those who are still three-dimensional refuse to repent and curse God. It doesn't make any sense. Or does it? The idea of repentance being changing one's mind with the desired result of changing one's life. I see two types of repentance in scripture. There's a big R repentance, we'll call it, and a little r repentance. The big R is that change where a person becomes a believer. Turning away from sin in general and following after God. We'll call that big R. Not because it's, I mean, it is maybe more important, but all of repentance is important. The, the little r repentance is more about turning from specific sins once one is a believer. And we're supposed to be in a constant state of repentance. Why don't we? I think the reasons for a lack of repentance, either the big R or the little r, are probably the same. It really comes down to two reasons. One is ignorance. People don't repent because they're ignorant. And I don't mean that as a slam. Um, Let me give you an example. So when I was in elementary school, um, I used to walk to school. um, Uphill both ways um, in the snow. It uh, it made me who I am. But for some reason, in, in later elementary school, I started this habit of walking by vehicles and flicking their antennas. Right? You bend it back, you let it go, and then it's kind of a satisfying sound. Well, one day when I was doing that, so I was approaching school, flipping all the antennas, this guy barges out of his house and lights into me, told me in no uncertain terms that he did not appreciate my habit, threatened to call my dad, everything. Else. I mean, I was, I was terrified. I was scared. I was embarrassed. I was sorry. Now, you could easily say that I should have known better. I should have. I should have. I just didn't think about it. I didn't think about what I was doing and the effect that it had on others. It was ignorance. Inexcusable ignorance? Sure. But ignorance nonetheless, I just didn't think about it until that day when I repented. This is how it works. 
right? At that day, it might not have been as spiritually motivated for me, but after that encounter, I knew it upset people. I knew it possibly caused damage. Therefore, I knew it was wrong. I didn't want to do that, and I didn't, right? My mind was changed. My heart was changed. My underwear was changed, and my actions were changed, Right? Every, everything happened all at once. Repentance, that's the idea. When we come into a knowledge of the truth, that should be our response. I think some people don't repent because they don't know. Maybe they've bought into the lies of Satan, which are all around us. Is it excusable? No. Paul makes it very clear in the first chapter of Romans that God leaves his fingerprints over all of creation. He he leaves his fingerprints over everything. There's no excuse for not acknowledging that that there is a God who is good and powerful. But it doesn't mean that we think about it. And so we may be left in ignorance. I think the other reason that people don't repent is obstinance. Just plain strong will refusal to repent. I guess there's lots of reasons for that also. I think of how fun sin is in the short term. We can all agree with that, right? If sin wasn't fun, nobody would have to tell us not to do it. But I really believe that many people don't repent and turn to God because they love the pleasure of sin too much. But they don't think about the long-term consequences. They fail to see how fulfilling following God can be, and they just don't want to. They know that they would have to give up that life to follow God. And they don't want to. Even as a believer, I want to sin because it's fun or advantageous somehow in the short term or easier in the short term. So that's one of the reasons. Sometimes I think there's a a payback element. That because of circumstances or, or life that's thrown at us, I think we get angry. I feel like maybe God deserves payback. I think you see this with with kids and parents sometimes. Kids are angry at something, everything. And they go and they make terrible decisions. Because that'll show them. I know, it's insane. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's not good for anyone. It's not good for the kids. It's not good for the parents. It's not not good for anyone. But I think anger blinds us sometimes. We get so furious at the world or what it's thrown at us. And rather than going to God, we take it out on whoever we can. Pride, I think, is another reason why we're obstinate. And maybe all of Maybe all of obstinance could be under the category of pride, but, but think about what repentance means. It is 100% an admission that we were wrong. 
It's the whole point of repentance. We're going in one direction, the wrong direction, and repentance is about turning around and going another direction. How many of us like to admit that we were wrong? No hands? That's what I thought. Right? We never, we never like to admit that we're lost. We're just taking the scenic route. But pride prevents us from repentance as well. Also, I think privacy. Trying to go along the alliterative effect. Um, but I, I think there's a certain transparency inherent in repentance. That um, not only do you have to admit that you were wrong, but kind of how you were wrong. A lot of repentance is acknowledging specifically what we've done wrong, and a lot of times other people end up knowing. And that's hard for us. It feels so much easier to keep it bottled up and hidden from the rest of the world. But that's not what God calls us to either. I think there are some keys to overcoming this in our lives. I think the key to overcoming ignorance is allowing other people to speak into your lives. God first, and also others. Our most solid moral ground uh, or guide is Scripture. And with the help of the Holy Spirit's convictions, we're made aware of sin in our lives and the good news about Jesus. And other people can also call us out. That should be welcome even though I get it's often not. But we should open ourselves up to other people's input in our lives and be grateful instead of defensive when someone cares enough about us to point it out. I always appreciate it. (laughs) No, I don't. But I should. I should, right? Especially if it's done with the right attitude and the right heart out of concern for me. I should be really grateful. I think the key to overcoming obstinance is cultivating a soft heart. It's seeking God through prayer and scripture. I mean, those, surprise, surprise, those are great answers for a lot of issues. But also killing pride whenever it rears its head. And practicing immediate repentance when we're faced with sin in our lives. To cultivate that heart that says, I don't have it all figured out and I desperately need God all the time. We're called to lives of repentance. Both with our vertical relationship between us and God and also our horizontal relationships with each other. God seems to use trials and tribulation to bring that out in us. But different substances have different reactions when the heat is on, so to speak. So of what substance is your heart? I got a couple of materials here and a toaster. Got some bread, got some butter. When heat is applied, what happens to the bread? Does it soften or harden? It hardens. What about the butter? If you put the heat on, it softens. 
Friends, that's exactly what should happen with our heart. What we see in this passage over and over again is heat is applied, there's trials and tribulations, and people harden their hearts towards God. If we were only more like this substance, when trials come, we soften our hearts, we open ourselves up to being wrong, we open ourselves up to what God would have us do in our lives, which is so much better, so much more fulfilling, and so much longer lasting. My prayer is that we will be a people that respond to trials and tribulations and life in general with a soft heart that will be quick to repent, first to God and also to others when we wrong them. As Kevin and I were prepping the sermon, uh, he thought it would be a good idea to close with us reading a passage together about repentance. And I quite agree. We don't do a lot of congregational readings, um, but let's do that today. I want to close with this verse, Second Peter 3, 9. Would you read with me? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. My friends, that is the heart of God. Would you pray with me?